Welcome to, uh, to this morning session. You see, I have a guest from Damaris. Yeah? He should be here. Compared to me, he's quite small, so it might be hard to see, but he's here in front. Is that good? Yeah. yeah. So hide, it's, it's always, hide behind him. It's always dark behind me, isn't it? Okay. Peter S. Williams. He's been working with Damaris for 10, 11 years. Yeah, 10, 11 years, yes. yes. And I think... I think you came uh, with uh, Met Artur first year in 2001, mm. is that right, in yep. London? Yeah. So we have a history, and he's been joining us in, for this tour mm. for many years, and also uh, at Gimlecol at some, some points. And uh, he's actually employed at Gimlecol, right? Just up your knees, is, would that be like 20%? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nominally, up to, I think he's actually up to my ankles, but yeah. Uh, good. yeah. 20%. <laughs> good. So he, he is a colleague of mine, and, uh, and he's working with Damaris. Uh, quite a bit of his work is, is, uh, uh, is doing conferences. Uh, you can explain a little bit of those. Mm -hmm. But Damaris, you know, they, they develop material for websites, for schools to use teaching material but they also offer conferences and, and Pete is one of the one of the people who are offering conferences to to schools and on your sheet you can see there are three now mm -hmm. three main conferences they offer you used to have a little more mm -hmm. great number Variety. before but this is developing all the time yes. um, and he Pete is a philosopher so he's different than the other people we've met, so everyone is different. That's not unique, is it? Uh, but he has a unique ability to absorb a lot of material, analyze it, and, and then communicate it. Uh, so I hope you, you learn from his, both his, his knowledge, but also his, his ability to teach. So we're very privileged to have you here. And uh, the, the, the topic today is on Youth culture and education. Uh, and education is one form of communication, right? It's one mm -hmm. setting for education where your role is defined as either a student or a teacher. And in education, you have a, a teacher role and you have an opportunity to communicate in mm -hmm. a specific form of arena. And, and uh, when you're teaching in a secular school, you need to be sensitive to the group and the context, to the arena. In teaching in a Christian religious school, you have some different kind of rules. And we need to be very sensitive to, to what, what are the rules of the arena. And I think the Mars has developed very, very helpful tools for us and a very helpful way of dealing with, with teaching in the secular arena while still, still retaining our... Christian identity and integrity. And one of the conferences uh, Pete is offering, the Mars is offering, is That's a Good Argument, which is uh, what you will be offering us today. It's, it's training people in logic. And, and for many people, it would be very strange for a Christian to teach people logic, because they are illogical people. It's atheists who should do this. So just the fact that it's a Christian who is teaching logic is, is um, kind of testifying to something that is important. And you know, for apologetics, logic mm -hmm. is important. And there will be two, two topics today. The first one is on, on argument and, and showing how they're doing uh, a conference in the school setting. 
And then in the afternoon, the, the topic will be different, but they are linked. It's, it's looking at, the, at C.S. Lewis and the new atheists. Uh, in your hand, uh, in your uh, tour Bible, uh, there is an uh, introduction to the new atheists uh, and a little bit about C.S. Lewis as well. So you can familiarize yourself with, <coughs> with some of the stuff before the afternoon. Just one more thing. Uh, Colossians is Colossians 3 is the topic for today. Um, for, your, for your personal study time, make sure you read through the chapter. And, and maybe you, you can, you can uh, remind yourself of, of um, in that text, the link between beliefs, doctrine and um, action and community. Krish was, was on that yesterday. Right. Made this triangle mm. with beliefs or doctrine mm. and then action and then community. If you look at those verses, you'll see these things, mm. these, these things belong very closely together. Mm. Okay? Mm. Pete, you tell us a little bit about yourself and then sure. you go to the conference and we'll be going until 11 o'clock okay. when tea will be ready for us. Marvellous. Well, hello. Uh, it's lovely to be here. This is always one of the highlights uh, of my year to get to come to such a lovely place and speak with such a lovely bunch of people, as you always are uh, from Gimla Collin. And I always find it amusing that the bunch of Norwegians comes from the, the cold, uh, chilly north down to the southern, bright, warm part of England and then sit here under some sort of knitted blanket <laughs> as if they've emigrated to the North Pole. Um, <laughs> so uh, I hope you're uh, uh, coping with our English uh, weather changing uh, all the time on you. Um, so as uh, Bjorn says, I've, I've been with Damaris for about 10 years. Before that, I did uh, student work in a church... Uh, in uh, the middle of the country and before that I studied philosophy at various universities and before that I came from Portsmouth which is a city right down on the, the south coast which we drove past on our way up here uh, today from Southampton. Uh, I've brought with me a couple of guests at the back. Uh, we have Lena and uh, Becca who are uh, Damaris uh, interns and just finished being an intern and now uh, being in charge of uh, web publishing and uh, schedules of people's publishing and so on to make sure Damaris are churning out the right things at the right time in the right places. I guess that would be a good summary, yes? Something like that, good. And, uh, this reminds you yeah, that you could be interns at Damaris at some point. Indeed. Not just coming to Madrid but also to Southampton. Yes, yeah. we, have, we have a short-term interns and longer term intern programs as well so we're very flexible on it and we'll try and tailor uh, your uh, gifts and needs for wanting to develop certain skills into what Demoris uh, do and need doing and so on. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit more about the setup of this material we're going to be doing this morning. Um, I've developed it with Demaris for doing in state secular schools around the country um, and that's very much, as Bjorn was saying, about uh, kind of giving people a, a very level playing field for everybody, whatever they believe about the big questions in life, like particularly, uh, is there a God we look at at the end of this conference. Um, and the, the mere fact that it is a Christian coming in and, and teaching 
in this manner, which is A, focused on what does it mean to be rational, to be wise in what you think. And secondly, is all about everybody having a, an equal say in the conversation. Everybody's treated uh, fairly and judged against the, the same set of, of rules of logic in terms of how well they do and what they say. That counters a very popular cultural impression of what Christians uh, are like and what they believe. Um, particularly the new atheists movement that we'll be looking at later this afternoon um, have done a very good job of pushing this, in, this line in society that, that all religious belief, all faith, is a matter of uh, believing things without any reason to do so. Indeed, um, the whole point of faith is to believe things that the evidence is against. Uh, that faith is the same thing as, as blind faith. Although the very fact that in English we have to qualify what we mean by faith by saying, well, blind faith, rather than a well-grounded, a well-placed uh, trust or faith in someone or something, um, gives the lie to the fact that, that you know, faith does not only mean blind faith, uh, trust without any good reason for trusting um, but they push this line that well that's what religious faith is and of course that's irrational and of course therefore you don't want to be religious so here comes a religious person into school and they think oh no you know the RE department's put on this conference day for us we're not even being examined on this I haven't chosen to study RE some of the children there have of RE course religious education yeah. or uh, often now being termed uh, philosophy and ethics so we, we term this a uh, philosophy conference we're, what are we going to be doing spending the whole morning colouring in pictures of Jesus like Sunday school you know or I'm going to preach at them you know bash them over the head with the bible and give them altar call at the end so we don't do any of that uh, and indeed, what I'm going to do with you today is, is I've, I've taken out the main section of this conference that I'm going to be using with undergraduate students at uh, Winchester University next week. First year students, new students, as part of their uh, new sort of freshers induction week, the university put on a programme of various sort of study skills, uh, opportunities to meet new other students and so on. And I'm putting on a couple of afternoons of a rolling programme of this material. Uh, uh, Chris has just written a book, Fresh. Mm -hmm. uh, have you been using, or you, do you know that? that I, I've heard of, but not used, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so both are working with, at universities, helping, uh, Fresh is for Christians, mm. university, how they should relate to university culture. Mm. Well, this is this is more a training for everyone. Yes. So, uh, pre-evangelistic. Yeah, yeah, very um, pre-evangelistic. In the schools, I teach this material about how arguments should work and how they can go wrong. And then the students work for 20 minutes, half an hour in little groups, making, a, making up a little presentation that we then have presentations at the end from a range of, of different groups of students on what they think about whether or not there's a God. And they have to argue using the rules that we've taught them, why we should believe that there is a God, or why we should believe that there isn't a God, or why we should believe that we don't know 
whether or not there's a God. Or why we should believe that we can't know whether or not there's a God. And that's it, because those are the only options that you have with... <laughs> no, yeah. Um, but we won't do the, the group work and the, the presentations today. We don't have time for that. But that's what I then use this material to build on, to then introduce that key idea in religion of, you know, is there a God? And get them trying to argue what they personally think. So I'm not forcing anything on them at all. I'm letting them express their views. But what really happens is that everybody in that conference, of whatever opinion on the matter they are, discovers that A, it's a lot harder than you might think to go from your sort of intuitive gut instinct on this matter to an argument for believing what you believe. And that's a lot harder than you might think. Uh, And that's good for the Christians who are there in the hall to discover that, that actually they need to work a little bit better at actually arguing for what they believe, but I've given them the tools to, to be able to start doing that. And it's you know very good for the atheists there to discover that actually it's a lot harder to really argue for atheism than they, than they thought. And that maybe, well, maybe, you know, agnosticism is a little bit more easy to defend. Or, so we, we'll, we'll soften our stance towards God. And I often do get groups of students saying, well, we, we were going to argue for atheism and we tried and we found it so difficult <laughs> that we decided we were going to be agnostics. So we were gonna, you know, that was an easier task to do. So, which is progress, you know. Um, <laughs> So, let's start. Let me just say a few words about philosophy before we get started. Because to be honest, I'm a, I'm a philosopher, and I've just written a textbook uh, of philosophy that will come out uh, towards the end of next year. So I've been thinking very much about, well, what is philosophy? Um, that question, the answer to that question is one of the things on which philosophers will disagree. <laughs> um, which tells you a lot about philosophers. See. But the word philosophy, it comes from two ancient Greek uh, terms. Uh, Philo and Sophia. Uh, Philo uh, means familial, brotherly love. Um, So not the kind of love that you have for um, chips. I love chips. Not that kind of love. Not the love that you have have for your girlfriend or your wife. I love you. You know, not that kind of love. Um, Not the kind of love that God has for us, or that you are supposed to have, you know, love your neighbour as yourself, agape, love. Um, But the other kind of love that the Greeks uh, delineated, uh, the kind of familial, brotherly, uh, companionable love of a friend for a friend, or a brother for a brother. And Sophia, from which we get the the English name Sophie, uh, means wisdom. So philosophy is literally philosophia, philosophia, the brotherly, companionable love of wisdom. And I would say a philosopher, and we might get beyond to translate this sentence uh, after I said it, if we could. A philosopher is someone dedicated to the wise pursuit and dissemination of true answers to significant questions through the practice of good intellectual habits. 
and we have a go at. <laughs> yes. Okay. And philosoph and some Henry uh, Sassel, the kluge there's a lot in that definition about values and, and about what kind of person you're being if you're trying to be a philosopher you'll notice that you could be a professional philosopher who gets paid to do that kind of stuff but you don't have to be a professional philosopher to be a philosopher everybody anyone could be a philosopher according to that definition the thing about Values and, and what kind of person you're being is, is very important as well. I would build on what Krish was saying yesterday and add something to his triangle, which might muck it up and make it a square. But um, <laughs> uh, one of the things I've been writing on lately is the nature of spirituality uh, and um, thinking about worldviews. You'll be f- familiar, hopefully, from Gimler Column about the, the concept of worldviews, your set of basic beliefs, answers to the really fundamental questions, your your beliefs, your worldview, um, and your actions in life, and whether those fit together consistently or not. But I would add something in the middle that connects your beliefs to your actions, and that's the attitudes of your heart. Um, It's one thing, as the Bible says, to believe that God exists. But the demons believe and tremble, says the Bible, because they hate his guts. And yet we believe that there's a God and we love him because we have different attitudes towards what we believe to be true that will lead us to act in very different ways. So we can have the same belief but different attitudes to what you believe can lead to very different actions. So I say a spirituality is how you relate to reality. It's about relationships with everything. Through your your head, your worldview, your heart, your attitudes, and your hands. What you do because of that. And the worldview, of course, is very important to that. And we want to have um, a wise worldview. A set of answers that are the the sensible, wise answers to give to the basic, important, significant questions. 
Because we want those answers, uh, as far as possible, to be true, rather than false. Just as we want the attitudes of our hearts to be good, rather than bad, and the things that we do, the kind of life that we have, the kind of community that we have because of this, to be beautiful, rather than ugly. Um, So there is a connection here between our spirituality um, and the values that we're pursuing and embodying um, so philosophy is not just about a set of you know, intellectual discussions and arguments that have nothing to do with anything that's just of interest to the, you know, those professional philosophers in their ecologically unfriendly ivory towers at the university it's actually to do with what kind of person are you becoming What kind of life and community are you in pursuit of? And are you uh, doing that on the basis of wisdom or not? And of course the Bible has a lot to say about wisdom and the the fear, the awe of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom uh, and so on. So in short, philosophers seek to know and defend the truth by thinking carefully about things and then arguing well about things. And this material this morning, we're really focusing on the, well, how do you argue well about things aspect of that whole structure that I'm talking about. I've wanted to put it in that context. So this is not just an intellectual game. This is a big thing that connects to your, your whole spirituality, your worldview, your life, what kind of person you're becoming, and so on. Okay. So, let's get into the conference material. Duped. 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 Uh, Con, don't don't, don't fall for something that's um, being presented as good or real, but isn't. Um, Don't let someone sell you a second-hand car that's about to fall apart. We need to think very carefully, particularly in our culture, this is a photo of Times Square in, in New York. And it's a, a good example of, you know, we live in a culture that absolutely bombards us with messages, uh, with uh, visual, auditory, written, etc., style. Um, this is not a good example, but, you know, all sorts of messages trying to convince us to believe this, believe that, you know, have this attitude towards this drink, think that drink's cool, I'll buy that one, um, you know, etc. Uh, some t- statistics from America showed that, uh, looked at American teenagers and the amount of time every day, on average, that they spent doing different things in life. And that's quite a good measure of what you, you think is important, what you actually do, what you spend your time on. Um, the number one activity for American teenagers was sleeping. Okay. Not too surprising. The number two activity for American teenagers was looking at a screen. That might be a TV screen, a cinema screen, your computer screen, your iPad screen, your iPhone screen. Other makes of phone are available. But giving other people, basically, an opportunity to influence you through what you see and hear and read. And we need, just as a life skill, let alone an academic skill, 
to be able to have a sort of sieve to sort out, well, which of these ideas that are being communicated to me are true, and which are false, which are good, which are bad, which are beautiful, which are ugly. We need a sieve to we certainly don't want to just be persuaded, particularly on really significant beliefs, by which side of the debate has the biggest advertising budget. <laughs> you know, do you make up your belief on things like, you know, is there a God, by the fact that the British Humanist Association and Richard Dawkins and so on have got enough money to put posters on buses going around London saying there's probably no God. Um, I think it was the advertising authority that wouldn't let them say there isn't a God. Um, <laughs> had to soften that to there's probably no God. Um, well, let's look at a couple of examples of adverts. Uh, of course, all adverts have the same underlying basic message, which is, please, 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 give me your money. Okay. Um, but they usually try and be a bit more subtle about it. <laughs> They're saying, give me your money. You know, they don't just come on and say that. They come on and say something else that they think will, will encourage you to give them your money. So let's look at uh, this example of someone trying to encourage you to give them the money and think to ourselves, okay, what are they, what are they messages are they communicating to, to us through all sorts of different memes, maybe the music, maybe what they show, maybe what they say, and so on. All sorts of different ways. They try and communicate something to us that they think will encourage us to get rid of our money into their pockets. Um, what are the messages that you pick up from this advert. <laughs> just let me give you a couple of minutes just to talk amongst yourselves and we'll get some feedback from you. What message is really communicated to you by that advert? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Why would we want to do that? <laughs> well, you have your Our hair, hair well, it has a colour, you know, most of us. Uh, yeah. Or a shade. <laughs> yes. Let me interrupt you. So, anyone want to, to volunteer any of the uh, many uh, messages, things that were communicated to you um, by that advert, how it was communicated to you? Your hair gives you identity, like a more uh, self uh, Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. Okay. So if you colour your hair, you get an identity, an identity that's about being more self-confident, brave. Yeah. Okay. Um, how did they communicate that message to you? What, what did they do to make you think that? That she looks. Into, or first she sees the lady and mm. she's like, oh, <laughs> Ooh, yes. and, yeah, intimidated, and then she looks at her hair and the hair, or yeah, yeah. Uh, reflection, and she's like, yeah. 
Thank you. Oh, yeah, <laughs> excellent. Yeah, so they, they tell you this little drama. There's a whole little soap opera in like a minute. Yeah. And also the song? Mm hmm. In the yeah. Yes, don't think twice. Just go for it. You don't have to, yeah, you don't have to think. You don't have to worry. You can be self-confident. You, you, you are deserving of those really nice shoes in the posh shoe shop. The lady in the shoe shop doesn't think you're worth it. What are you doing thinking about coming in my establishment? Oh, but I've coloured my hair, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I am just the sort of person who can who can buy swanky shoes, and then I, and then I can walk down the street taller than everyone else that the that the camera crew you know put next to me because they're all shorter than me not deliberately because I need to stand out now. See, yeah, yeah. And also, uh, when she was walking down the street, she was the only one with. Coloured hair, everyone was dressed in... Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just like real life, isn't it? You know, no one else... Uh, it's like those car adverts, where if you buy their new car, there'll be no other cars on the streets. And you can just drive. Marvellous. Um, buying their car gives you your own personalised alternative reality. It's great. Yeah. There's a bit of a flip side. This message about... If you use our hair colouring, then you will be brave and courageous. You'll have an identity. You'll be worthy of buying nice shoes in swanky, posh shoe shops. That's a kind of positive way of saying what they've said. What would be the negative way of saying what they've communicated to us? Yeah. You are only as good as your hair colour? Yeah. <laughs> if you don't use our hair colour, you're not worth it. You're not an individual. You won't be brave enough, etc., etc. Um, so, you know, you didn't, you know, before watching the advert, you didn't know you needed hair colouring necessarily. <laughs> but they're so kind to you, the goodness of their hearts, they will come and create this, this felt need within you that, oh dear, maybe I'm not good enough if I don't colour my hair. Or, oh, you know, maybe I'm not enough of an, an individual and I'll just merge into the, the, the crowd and, oh, but I better use hair colouring then. Why should you use hair or hair colouring? Why not Boots' own brand hair colouring? Exactly. They gave you absolutely no reason to use their brand of hair colouring. I suppose they did say it gives you 100% coverage. But colouring tends to do that when you wash it through your, your hair. Um, I don't think there's any hair colouring on the market out there advertising, we will colour 95% of the hairs on your head. <laughs> Okay, yeah. so they don't really give you any good reason to believe what they're telling you, but they tell you, they create this feeling, they tell you this story, they give you a little illustration that's all meant to try and change your emotions, really, to feel a certain way towards their product. Yeah. I'm just wondering the word uh, persuade. Uh, pers- oh, okay. This is all about persuasion. Yeah. Persuasion through many different ways. Yeah. And uh, we rather like logic. Yeah. Mm. I, I'm, 
I'm trying to get you to do something or feel something or believe something that at the moment you don't believe or feel, don't do. So I'm trying to persuade you to, to move um, to where I want you to be. Yeah. Uh, here's a, another quick look at an advert. <laughs> what a fabulous car that must be. It must be a toy. <laughs> it must be a toy. It must be, else is so small. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a small car. It, it, it must be fun. It's like going back to your childhood. Uh, it's so cool and funky. The editing, the music. Um, it's all just the images and the, the, the editing. Masterpiece of editing, that advert. Um, but when you think about it, which of course they don't want you to do, the next advert's now on, you're thinking about that one. It's a little bit like this. Does it... Do any of you play sport? You're in a sport team? What sport team are you in? Soccer team. Soccer team. Ah, marvellous. What's, what's your name? Aspen. Aspen? Sorry, let me shake your hand, Aspen. So that I associate myself with Aspen. I'm, I'm putting myself near to Aspen. Aspen. Look, look, Aspen. Me, me, me. Aspen. Me. Okay. So now, of course, you all believe I'm good at playing soccer. Yeah, yeah. You're very close. Must be. Yeah. Anyone play a musical instrument? Yeah, what do you what do you play? The piano. The piano. What's it what's your name? John. John. Hi John. Uh, John. Me. John. He's really good at playing the piano. Me. I'm really good at playing the piano, aren't I? Probably. Probably, yeah. Our car, look, Rubik's Cube. Our car, look, a thing that works really well. Our car, look. <laughs> the paperclip. So, of course, their car must be a brilliant everyday object that's really fun, easy to use, a design classic. The, the conclusion that they're trying to get you to buy into simply doesn't follow from anything that they've done in the advert. It doesn't really give you a good reason to believe that it's a design classic. They've just associated their car in your feelings and your, your images they've given you with other things that they think you'll have positive attitudes towards. This is a very sophisticated, very clever form of an age-old type of advertising, which in the past would probably have gone like this. Here's our new car. Look at the lady in a bikini on the bonnet. <laughs> lady in a bikini on our new car. Buy our new car. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's less sexist, fortunately. But it's still the same trick, you see. So really they're trying to trick you, to dupe you, because they're not really giving you a good reason. Now, giving reasons might be something that makes for slightly more boring adverts, I would admit. But you could, you could be creative about it. But you see there's a difference between just asserting something, just saying, our car's a great car, our hair colouring will make you brave. Just issuing a truth claim or a statement... And actually arguing for something. As William Lane Craig says, an, an argument is a set of statements, a set of 
truth claims, more than one truth claim, which serve as premises, sort of launch points, leading to a conclusion. So you have a number of truth claims that together lead you to a conclusion, and then you have an argument. All this goes back to an ancient Greek chap called Aristotle in the 4th century BC. And here's a famous Aristotelian-type example. This is logic 101. If you can grasp this, which I'm sure that you can, it doesn't get much more complicated than this. Okay, Socrates, another ancient Greek chap, is a human. Okay? Socrates is a human. New premise. All humans die. Okay? Conclusion. Therefore, these two premises lead up to Socrates will die. Socrates is a man. All men die. So Socrates will die. Have I lost anyone? No. (laughs) This is just intuitively obvious. You can just see that if these are true, then this must be true. There's absolutely no possibility that Socrates is a human, that that's true, and that it's also true that all humans die, and yet it be true that Socrates won't die? Of course he will. He's a man. And all men die, so he'll die. It's obvious. But the clever thing that Aristotle did was to say, we're doing all this philosophy, trying to work out answers to these significant questions. And when we're doing that, we're trying to think well and argue well. Let's think and argue about what it is to be a good argument. Let's think about thinking. We're stumbling through the house at night with a torch, looking at all the interesting things... Maybe if we sort of, I don't know, got some sort of mirror and reflected the light from the torch back on the torch, we could look at the torch and we understand how it works and make a better one because we can see it. That's quite a clever thing to think. Bjorn. Just to, in in, in Norwegian, the person who had the example of philosophy has been in this with logic. Och det är den enklaste form för logisk uppsättning som kallas synlogismen. Och vi brukar ju dessa ord på något sätt. Det finns två sättningar som samman utvecklas och skriver fram en konklusion. Och det är som den logiken fungerar. Är det någon spörsmål? Are there any questions right now about where we are? Is looking at logic, how logic works, at the syllogism. Syllogism, yeah. det, det är det greske ordet för hvordan ett sånt offset vi sätter ord i samman med vår konklusionssyllogism. Think about the, the English word logic. Syllogism, logism. Yeah. How, a, a, an argument. Mm. Uh, and syn, the, the first... Uh, pre- prefix means together. You put words, uh, logic or words together, you get uh, argument. Yeah. So this plus this 
equals this. Um, here's a little video with me and a steam train. Ooh. <laughs> of train track is a bit like a syllogism. It's got two rails or premises and they're connected together by these sleepers or by some sound logic. And that allows you to mount your train of argument from A to B. But just as one section of track is rarely enough to get you to your destination, so a single syllogism is rarely enough to carry the whole argument you want to make. A train relies upon many sections of track, carefully laid together one after another. A train of argument relies upon a series of syllogisms, carefully connected one to another, to carry the argument from its first premise all the way through to its concluding destination. Very good. We buy that. <laughs> <laughs> so, syllogism can, can be used to refer to this, this smallest unit of argument that you can have, where you have one premise plus a second premise leads to a conclusion. But sometimes an argument is made up of several syllogisms that all kind of link together. First syllogism feeds into the second one and so on. It's like you have premise, premise, conclusion... But we carry forward that conclusion and treat that conclusion as a new premise in a second argument. So if we add a, another premise, we'll get a new, different conclusion out. And we can keep doing that until we've said everything that we need to say to get to the conclusion that we're trying to argue for. The ultimate thing that we're arguing for might need us to argue for a number of of sort of stages of the argument beforehand. And first of all, I need to prove that this is the case by saying this and this means this. So this is the case. And then I need to prove that something else is also the case. Um, and you should believe that because this and this means this. Now look, we've, we've already got this established and now we've shown this. But this and this mean this. So we've done sort of three different arguments. One argument to show one premise, one conclusion. Another argument to show another one. And then we can put those two together to get a third conclusion, which is the thing that we were ultimately trying to, to aim at showing. So however long an argument is, you can always break it up we should be able to break it up if it's an argument that works, into a number of separate syllogisms that are premise, premise, conclusion. Uh, like beads on a necklace. One necklace can be made up of many different beads. Okay? So, for example, Socrates is a human, all humans die, therefore Socrates will die. Carry that forward. Socrates will die. We're now treating this as a premise in a second argument. Socrates will die. 
Premise, dead bodies decompose. The ancient Greeks were a cheery lot, obviously. Um, therefore, new conclusion, Socrates' body will decompose. Decompose for two. Yeah, rot. Let's try an example. I'm going to show you a, a film clip. Um, from a comedy in which Jim Carrey plays a lawyer uh, in court, uh, trying to win a court case. And he, he, he does win a court case uh, in a very unusual situation. And I'm going to play the clip and get you to, to write out, complete the argument that he uses to win the court case. And it's an argument that's made up of two syllogisms, just like the example we looked at that overlap each other. And we've written down here on your worksheet that the first premise and the ultimate conclusion, and I want you to see if you can fill in the missing steps of the argument that allow you to safely go, as it were, from, from over here, step by step by step by step to the conclusion. It's, it's a bit like crossing a stream on stepping stones, doing logic. You need to get in the dry from one side to the other. We just set up the fact that he's a lawyer and his, his client is someone who had married a very, very rich man. And when they got married, she signed what's, what's in legal terminology called a prenuptial agreement. It's an extra legal contract on top of the marriage contract. And in her case, this extra bit of legal contract said, if you divorce me, if our marriage ends, normally I would get half of everything that we own together. Okay, so if we get divorced, you get half the money, I get half the money. But if I cheat on you with another man and I commit adultery, and you divorce me because I've committed adultery, and you've proven that I've committed adultery, then you don't have to give me any money. You can keep all the money if I cheat on you. Okay? Now... How, how they talk for not of financial agreement? Sarah, I have father till the scuffling of the son of father in the leg on what I'm going to Now, unfortunately, this lady has committed adultery and cheated on her husband, and he is divorcing her. So, of course, he expects to keep all the money. Jim Carrey's job, as this lady's lawyer, is to get her half of the money, even though she has committed adultery, and she's signed this legal contract saying, if I do that, you don't have to give me any money. <coughs> And he has to do it using a good argument because for reasons we needn't go into here, the whole story is about this lawyer who's under a magical curse, which means he literally finds it impossible to say anything that's not true for a whole day. Um, which gets him into all sorts of embarrassing situations. You know, people say, do you like my new dress? And he says, no, it's terrible. You know, because he can't say anything that's not true. He was, he was going to say, oh, it's like... Oh, no, it's terrible. Um, so he has, to, he has to tell the truth. So how on earth is he going to win this court case? 
I'll play the, the clip. There's a bit of setup. I'll, I'll clearly flag to you when the actual argument gets started. And the trick here is people don't generally, unless they're a philosopher, they don't go around saying, my first premise is... My second premise is... <laughs> but whenever anyone argument, argues, that structure, that syllogistic structure, is there. That's what they're aiming at. And he, he does a good argument here. So there's a structure, there are two syllogisms, it's a good argument, he wins the case. See if you can work out what the argument is. <laughs> <laughs> they don't get on, by the way. Um, <laughs> Okay, so we've got the first premise. The prenuptial agreement is only valid if she was over 18 when she signed it. And we've got the conclusion, the second conclusion, the ultimate conclusion. Therefore, she gets half the assets, half the money. Can you fill in the missing bits? Now, as you start filling in, the logic starts helping you because once you've got this bit of information here, That'll tell you, think, what follows. This will be the same bit of information. And then you think, well, I've got this bit of information. What would it have to be true here in order for this conclusion to follow? So what's sort of the missing bridge to get from here to there? So even if you can't remember what he said, you'll be able to work out that he said something like... Because you know that this argument wins. You know it's a good one. So if you were to say this, then that would get you where you're going. I'll give you a while to do that and then we'll feed it back together. Okay, so we've got the first premise. The prenuptial agreement's only valid, it's only in effect, if she was over 18 years old when she signed it. What's the second premise? Yeah. That she was only 17. That she was only 17 when she signed it, exactly. Or, now, the crucial thing here is you don't have to use exactly the same words. What you have to put in is the same bit of information. So you could say, but she was under 18 when she signed it. Or, but she wasn't 18 yet when she signed it. Or, she was only 17 when she signed it. Those are all the same bit of information, although they've expressed them in different ways. And in argument, it's, the, it's really the information that's the key, rather than the particular words. Because, of course, you could argue the same thing in different language let alone in different ways in the same language. But the crucial thing is, is the, inf is the information the same? So don't worry if you've said, but she wasn't 
over 18 or she was only 17. As long as you've got something that means the same thing, that's fine. So if we've got these two premises, prenuptial agreement is only valid if she was over 18 when she signed it, but she wasn't over 18 when she signed it, therefore... Prenuptial agreement is not valid. Prenuptial agreement is not valid. Right. That's what follows from those two premises. So we carry that forward. We know where we're going in this case, just to be helpful. So what's, what's the missing bridge here? What would have to be true in the middle to get from here to there? The prenuptial agreement isn't valid. Something, therefore she gets half the money. Was it that the state of wherever they were uh, determined that in a divorce, yep. both parts could have? Get, in the absence of something like a prenup, both halves should get half. Yeah. So anything, again, that means the same thing I've put here. Without a valid prenuptial agreement, she gets half of the assets. That's the, the crucial bit of information. Assets, but the money. Yeah, and you're right. That's because the, that's the law in the particular state that they're that they're in, that that's the kind of default position. So you see, once you understand about the structure of an argument, even if you've, you've got a bit missing, you can kind of work out what it should be. What you'd, what, what you'd have to think is true in order to get to the conclusion. Now, new section. So is there any questions about that before we, we move on to a new, slightly different section. Marvellous. So it's, it's necessary, it's enough, uh, it, it, it's something you need, but it's not enough, it's not sufficient to have two premises and a conclusion in order to have a good argument. You can have bad arguments, of course, just because, you know, it, it's good to know they haven't even bothered giving me an argument in that advert and to then spot when someone is giving you an argument. That's, that's progress. But of course they might give you a bad argument. So you need to be able to tell the difference between good ones and bad ones. For example, uh, footballs are round. Onions are round. Therefore, footballs are onions. <laughs> Mmm, we're looking forward to lunch now. A nice tasty lunch of football. Mmm. Um, now, obviously, I, this, this is an argument. It's a bad argument. <laughs> it's not sound. Uh, it's got two premises and a conclusion. But that doesn't mean it's a good argument. You need more things going right in order to have a good argument. There are actually three things that you need to go right with your syllogism for it to be a sound, to be a, a trustworthy syllogism. And here's uh, Luke Pollard, son of Nick Pollard of the Dwarfs Trust, just recently graduated from Oxford, uh, talking about these three conditions for a, a good argument um, and illustrating them with breadsticks. To make an argument work, you must have three solid building blocks. Thank you. First, it must be logically valid, which means that the logic must work. Second, it must have true premises. And third, 
in the sort of non-ambiguity terms, which means the words the argument relies on must not have a double meaning. However, if one of these is broken, then the whole structure falls down. Okay, so we obviously need to learn three things, three rules, in addition to learning about this structure of arguments. And once you've learned that, unilogic, basically. You know, there are more complicated things to say. There would be other things that you could remember that would be useful to remember. But basically, you know, on the ground floor, everything you need uh, to start actually using logic and argument well. You see on your worksheet that there's this lovely flowchart diagram. This is the key diagram. This is the key thing to, if there's anything here to learn and remember, it's this. In philosophy, there's very little, it's not a subject that's about learning things and then coming out with the correct answer that you've learned. It's, it's about learning a skill, learning how to apply a way of thinking, apply a skill, get good at a skill. Now, it's one thing to learn that on a musical stave, when I have a black dot here, it means press that note there, press the C. Um, and if you learn, what, eight, 16 different symbols, then you'll be able to play the right notes in the right order. So you're a musician. Well, it takes a bit more practice than that, but you're not really learning any new information. You're rather learning how to use it well. And it's like that with philosophy. It's very little to learn, but then it takes practice to get good at using the things that you've learnt. So, here are the three conditions Luke was talking about. Are the premises clear and unambiguous? That is, do you understand what bit of information is being communicated in the premise? Unambiguous, but clear, it's very Ambiguous, and it's very the second is, does the conclusion really follow from the premises? The problem with that argument about the footballs and the onions is that there wasn't really a premise that, that naturally followed from the information that I put in the premises. You know, given that football's around and given that onions around, well, nothing really, there's no sort of obvious implication of those two bits of information. Um, you might as well have said footballs are onions as onions of footballs. I mean, so there's got to be one thing that is implied by the information that it points to. And the third one is, are oh, the premises, all those bits of purported information actually true? And if they are, if you're confident about saying yes to those three questions, then you should have some confidence that the argument supports the conclusion. Now, that doesn't mean that you've necessarily proven that conclusion, there might be an even stronger argument for the opposite conclusion. You might have to weigh arguments against each other. You know, if you'll be familiar with this if you've watched any crime drama. You know, there'll be some red herrings. There'll be a bit of information that seems to point to the fact that the butler did it. You know, obviously the butler did it because of this. You know, there's a good reason for thinking the butler did it. But that's far too early on in the movie for that to be true, isn't it? Because we know we've got to go through some twists and we've got to discover some new information and several other bodies have to turn up before we work out the answer. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fun, you know. Um, 
So we have to weigh arguments against each other. But a sound argument has these clear, unambiguous terms, valid logic, true premises. Let me just illustrate those three things for you. Because obviously that means that if any one of these things isn't in place, if any one of those breadsticks is removed, the whole structure collapses. So everything has to go right for it to be a good argument. If any one thing goes wrong, then it's a bad argument. So if you have ambiguous terminology, and I'll illustrate this in a moment, or if you have a conclusion that doesn't follow, or if you have just one false premise, then it's a bad argument. And of course, really bad arguments have multiple, all of this could go wrong. <laughs> you know, it'd be an atrocious argument. And hence we get the full flowchart diagram. You've given an argument, you might need to write it down in this structure of syllogisms from someone's speech like that. Jim Carrey is saying all sorts of things, some of which is part of the argument, some of it's just illustrative and so on. Work out what the argument is and then ask these three questions of each syllogism in the argument. And to each question, the answer is either yes or no, in fact. Because you might say, I don't know. Um, are all the premises true? Well, the fact of the matter is that either they are all true or they're not all true. But you might not know whether or not they're all true. Okay, in which case you'd say, I don't know. But the facts are that they are all true or that they're not. The facts are is that the conclusion either does follow from those premises or it doesn't. And either there is ambiguous language that the argument trades on, or there isn't. Um, so there's a, an objective fact of the matter about whether it's a good argument or not. And we, in asking these questions, are trying to discover, is it a good argument or not? And we might fail to discover whether it's a good argument or not. Just, just like if there really is buried treasure somewhere in the grounds of the manor, and we go looking for it, we might find it, but we might not. But the fact that we don't find it doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't any treasure buried out there somewhere. Just maybe we haven't looked for long enough. Maybe we were using the wrong equipment. You know, we need to get a metal detector and, and so on. So let's look at those three different ways that arguments can go wrong. Ambiguity. Here's a, I'm going to inflict upon you some Groucho Marx. That's the great philosopher Groucho Marx, not the comedian Karl Marx, uh, who founded communism. Um, no, sorry, I got that the wrong way around, haven't I? Um, <laughs> uh, yes, Groucho Marx, an American comedian from the 1930s. Um, here's a, a very brief snippet from a, a comedy routine where he's pretending to have been on an African safari that he never went on. And he's trying to wow these rich people at a party with this stupid story about his adventures uh, in the deepest depths of Africa as a big game hunter. One morning I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How oh, he got in my pajamas, I don't know. <laughs> One morning I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he, the elephant, got in my pyjamas, I'll never know. Now, of course, there's an ambiguity in the, in the English of the sentence. Does it mean, one morning, I shot an elephant whilst I was wearing my pyjamas? Or, less likely, <laughs> does it mean, one morning, I shot an elephant when 
the elephant was wearing my pyjamas. The, the same sentence can me, could mean either thing. And since the second thing is much more stupid and less likely than the first one, that's how he then interprets that ambiguous sentence as, as meaning that, and you get the, oh, the surprise and the, the chuckle, um, at least if you like the humour of Groucho Marx. Which is great if you're a comedian, but terrible if you're a philosopher, because you can end up doing things like this. Look, notice this term here, plain. Plain. Yeah. It's a recurring term. A plain a plane is a carpenter's tool here, here it is, is a plane if I was planing this surface smooth so that you won't get splinters in it later plane it flat with a plane and we, we have invented the cheese plane yes <laughs> for your caramel cheese in the morning yeah. marvellous, I love that stuff Here's another premise. The Boeing 747 is a plane. Okay? Boeing 747 is a plane. It's the same word in English. Conclusion. Therefore, the Boeing 747 is a carpenter's tool. Now, you see how we've we've gone wrong? We've been able to draw that stupid conclusion because although this same word reappears in the two premises... When it reappears, it means something different. It's representing a different bit of information when it reappears. And that's bad news for an argument. In an argument, when a term reappears like this, you want it to mean the same bit of information. It's got to mean the same thing. Otherwise, you can use the the fact that it could mean one of several different things to draw whichever conclusion you happen to fancy. Which is not good news, because you, you want the, the information in the premises to point to one conclusion to, in order to support that conclusion and differentiate why you should believe that conclusion rather than anything else that you might believe, you see. Invalid logic is where the conclusion doesn't follow from the, the premises at all. If I was to say this, look, high-fat foods, foods that have a lot of fat in them, are bad for you. You should, you know, you should avoid eating too much high-fat food. Um, but you'll know that some yoghurt is high in fat. Okay? Some yoghurt is high in fat. Therefore, all yoghurt is bad for you. No, obviously not. What, what conclusion should follow from these two bits of information? Given high-fat foods are bad for you and some yoghurt is high in fat, <coughs> therefore... Yeah, therefore some yoghurt is bad for you. But you can't draw a conclusion about all yoghurt based on information that's only about some yoghurt. It just doesn't follow from those two premises, you see. So you can usually spot that by saying, well, what should follow from these two premises? And then seeing if there's a difference. If there's a difference, bad argument. And finally, false premises. Um, I'm, on, I'm on a diet at the moment, and so I try and resist biscuits at coffee time. Um, but it, good news, everyone. It's okay to eat broken biscuits yeah. if you're on a diet. If you break a biscuit, gradually all the calories leak out because yeah. you've broken the biscuit. The calories leak out. 
So if you just have the broken biscuits in the bottom of the, the biscuit barrel, you can eat them to the heart's desire. You won't take on any calories. You won't get any fatter. It's marvellous. Now, this is a logically valid argument. Look, if I only ate the broken biscuits, and if broken biscuits contain no calories, then I have eaten no calories, haven't I? So the conclusion does follow from the premises. Um, let's think, is there any ambiguity in the, in the language here? Um, what terms reoccur? Biscuits, biscuits reoccur. Broken biscuits, that's a reoccurring concept here. Does it mean the same thing in each of those two premises when, when broken biscuits reoccurs? Yeah, pretty, obviously it does mean the same thing. It means one of these. You know. So there's no ambiguity of language. It's logically valid. Uh, supposing it could, be, could well be true that I only ate the broken biscuits. I could live on a diet of broken biscuits. wouldn't be very good for me, but I could, that could be true. Um, unfortunately, this premise certainly isn't true, is it? Broken biscuits contain no calories. What planet are you on? Planet slim fast, if only. Um, that's just not true. So it's a bad argument. It's an unsound argument. So you see, there's these three ways of going, going wrong, and if any one of them goes wrong, throw the argument out. They've all got to go right through your flowchart in order to be a good argument. Any questions so far? We'll play a little game. lucky. Ah, right. Shall we do this as individuals or do you want to play in teams? Teams. teams. Okay, get into teams of at least two people because any less than that's not a team by my definition. You need more than two people. So get into groups of more than two people because we're going to play a little how's my logic game and you can assign yourself some marks later when we go through. We'll mark it after we've done it. Oh, it doesn't matter. Uh, they can get in here. Yeah. No, no worries. Yeah. <laughs> then you can help each other try and. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll tell you the scoring system later and I'll uh, trust you to score yourselves. <laughs> this point, with, with, with school students, I usually have a, a group of a few students, a few boys out, and a few girls out, and we see who's more logical, the boys or the girls? <gasps> yeah, who do you think normally wins? It's the girls, yeah. <laughs> Is this because they are, of course, more logical than boys? Well, it could be. It could also be that they're better at multitasking uh, <laughs> and that they're better at paying attention and listening and all sorts of useful skills like that because I, I, I let them look at this uh, argument up on the board and at some stage I, I stick an arm up in the air and they have to buzz with their squeaky buzzer that I've given them uh, to be the first to have an opportunity to, to give the answer and we give chocolate prizes at the end and so on. But you don't need such... Course and base bribery, do you? Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll show you a series of arguments and you try and give the answer and then at the end I'll go through and we'll, we'll mark them together. Um, but it'll be like this. There'll be one syllogism arguments 
There's four possible answers. You could say, well, that's a sound argument. That is a good argument. Or you could say, no, that's not a good argument. But it will be for one of the three possible reasons, one of the three different ways of going wrong. I've, I've been nice to you. If an argument goes wrong here, it only goes wrong in one particular way. Okay? In real life, of course, it can be more muddled. So the answer might be, well, it's, it's not sound because of invalid logic. Or because it's got one or more false premises. Or because it, it, there's some ambiguous language in there that it's trading on. So I'll let you look at these arguments and you can use the back of your worksheet to say, this case, this is syllogism number one. So tell me, is it... Don't shout out loud, you'll help other people. We'll look up... Will we have your PowerPoint afterwards? Yes, we'll we'll go through them again and, and look at them. But for now, just write for yourselves. Do you think this is a sound argument? Or is it unsound because of invalid logic? Or because of false premises, or because of ambiguity of terms. Okay. All goldfish can ride bicycles. You are a goldfish. Therefore, you can ride bicycles. Now, notice, don't get distracted by thinking, ah, oh, yeah, I can ride bicycles. That's true. That conclusion is true. Just because the conclusion of an argument is true doesn't mean it's necessarily a good argument for that conclusion. You can have bad arguments for true conclusions. Just as actually you can have good arguments for false conclusions because there are this thing of weighing arguments. You know, it might be the fact that, that there's some DNA on the knife linking you know, someone's DNA on the murder weapon is a good argument. You can construct a good argument for thinking they're the murderer. But if you get enough other evidence that shows they're being framed by someone who put, you know, nicked some DNA from them and put it on the murder weapon, and you could have overwhelming evidence on the other side of the case. Um, so it's all, when it comes down to it, about weighing these, these arguments often. So you've had long enough to look at this, to think which of these categories does syllogism number one fall into. Okay, here's syllogism number two. Again... One of these four answers will apply. Which one is it? When it rains, the pavement gets wet. The pavement is wet. Therefore, it must have rained. When it rains, the pavement gets wet. The pavement is wet. Therefore, it must have rained. Does that sound? unsound? If it's unsound, why? Okay. Hmm. Ready for number number three? (laughs) Here's number three. Syllogism number three. I'm washing the car using a sponge sponges grow in the sea therefore I'm washing the car using something that grew in the sea Mm. 
Here's syllogism number four. If a car runs out of fuel, it stops. This car has stopped. Therefore, this car has run out of fuel. Is that right? Number five. Premise. If being a bachelor means being an unmarried man, we're defining a term in the first premise here. We're saying that bachelor means being an unmarried man. Okay? Another premise. If Peter is a bachelor, conclusion, then Peter is an unmarried man. Is that a sound argument? Or not? And if not, why not? This is quite a tricky one, I think. Okay, here's the last one, number six. <laughs> Argument number six. <coughs> Premise. All fish lay eggs. Second premise, the duck-billed platypus, and here's a photo of a duck-billed platypus. Yeah, it's a real animal. Yeah, yes. from Australia. Uh, the duck-billed platypus is a fish. Therefore, the duck-billed platypus lays eggs. <coughs> Which, of course, it does. Okay. So now we'll go through those one at a time and we'll see if your answer matches with mine. Yeah, and if you've got the right answer, give yourself a point. <laughs> so, syllogism number one um, it's not a good argument because there are false premises. Um, goldfish cannot ride bicycles. Okay, that's not true. Um, you may hopefully have noticed as well that you are not goldfish. Um, <laughs> we just want to resolve any existential crises that people are having today. Uh, the argument said you are a goldfish is one of its premises. Um, that's not true. You're not. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned, the fact that the conclusion of the argument that was about you can ride bikes, just because the conclusion's true doesn't mean it's a good argument for it. Actually, this was a bad argument for that conclusion uh, because both of the premises were, were false. Syllogism 2 was a bad argument because of invalid logic. You can put it like this. Uh, raining is a sufficient condition. It's enough to make it the case that the pavement's wet. 
But there are lots of other reasons why the pavement might be wet, apart from it having rained. Maybe I, I got a hose and made the pavement wet. Maybe there was a passing dog and a lamppost that made the pavement wet. Uh, all sorts of reasons why the pavement could be wet. So it's not necessarily because it rained. It, it, and the conclusion said, well, it, it, the pavement's wet, so it must have rained. And that just doesn't follow. It, what would really follow would be to say, well, it, maybe it rained. That would be an explanation of why the pavement's wet. But we can't conclusively know that it rained merely from the information that rain does make pavements wet and that the pavement is wet because there are other alternative explanations that could also be true so the information doesn't doesn't uniquely point to one conclusion as the, the conclusion that follows from the information so it's invalid logic syllogism three there's an ambiguity in the language here uh, the word sponge in the argument uh, is used in English to refer to, to man-made synthetic sponges, which are the kind of sponge we had a photo of that you would wash a car with, a big squeezy sponge. But it also refers to the, the sea creature, the sponge, which is uh, something that grows in the sea, um, but it's not the sort of thing that you would use to wash a car with because it, it, it would ruin your paintwork. Um, <laughs> getting a sponge out of the sea and using it on your car. Um, so sponge means these two different things and pretty obviously from the context um, you'd use a man-made sponge on a car not one that grew in the sea. Syllogism 4 Again, invalid logic. This was actually this, exactly the same mistake as the one about the pavement. It had the same structure as the one about the pavement. And again, the same mistake. Um, okay, if a car runs out of fuel, it'll stop. But there are plenty of other reasons why cars stop. And people put their foot down on the brake pedal, for example. That would stop the car. Um, <laughs> every time you stop the car doesn't mean you've run out of fuel. Um, so there are other reasons so that, again, just because you know that the car stopped and you know that, well, if it runs out of fuel, it stops, that doesn't mean that this car must have run out of fuel. Syllogism 5 was a good argument. This was sound. And this is the one where we defined what bachelor means in the first premise. If bachelor means this, and if Peter is someone who falls under that definition then, of course, Peter's somebody who falls under that definition, and, and you can apply that definition to him. So if bachelor means an unmarried man, and Peter's an unmarried man, then you can say, express that same information by saying Peter's a bachelor, because bachelor and unmarried man mean the same thing. So that was a good argument. It was indeed analytically true. We just analysed the meaning of the terms in the argument. Interestingly, though, what the argument doesn't do is tell you whether or not Peter is a bachelor. Maybe he's married. Because, in the first place, maybe bachelor doesn't mean unmarried man. Um, we said if bachelor means unmarried man, uh, but maybe it doesn't. Actually, it does, but okay. And in the second premise, we said, and if Peter is a bachelor... But maybe he's not, maybe he's married. Then Peter would be an unmarried man. Well, in that case he would be, but is he? 
in reality, we don't know. The argument's all about this, this if, if, then, tells you what would be the case, given that certain other things are the case. But until we establish whether or not those preconditions of the argument are, in fact, the case, we don't know whether the conclusion actually applies to reality, as it were. It's, it's sort of notional. If we were planning to go on a walk tomorrow, but it chips down with rain tomorrow, then we probably won't go on a walk tomorrow. Okay, are we going to go on a walk tomorrow? Well, it depends. Are we planning to go on a walk, and will it chip down with rain? You know... <laughs> Finally, syllogism number six was false premises. Both premises were technically false. Um, it first of all claimed that all fish lay eggs. Most male fish do not lay eggs. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit tricky. <laughs> so you may not have spotted that one. Um, <laughs> but the dark-billed platypus is not a fish. Um, it's one of these sort of strange Australian marsupial type kind of things. It does, I'm told, lay eggs, but then it, it's young hatch and it has a pouch like um, wallabies and kangaroos do, you know. Um, so it lays eggs, but it's not a fish. It's a, it's a mammal. So, uh, anybody get uh, six out of six? Woo! Five out of six. Yay! Four out of six. Three out of six. Woo! <laughs> I gotta stop there. <laughs> As I said, it takes it just takes practice uh, and a little bit of time to get into the ways of doing it. But as you can see, once really once you've memorised this and the fact that you need premise, premise, leading to a conclusion, and that however long an argument is, you can break it down into these little units, these little atomic units of premise, premise, conclusion that you then carry forward and so on. Um, you're pretty much there in terms of thinking and arguing well, being able to take what someone says, put it into the structure if they haven't done it for you, and say, is this a good argument? Let me ask those three questions. When you're trying to mount an argument, let's try and put it into the right structure. Ask those three questions of my own argument to try and refine it and make sure it's a good one and so on. This afternoon, when we um, create a dialogue between C.S. Lewis who died 50 years ago next year, and the New Atheists, who were a movement of particularly British and some American atheists who started writing in the, the middle of the, the decade, um, we'll kind of create a, a fake dialogue between them on the existence of God, and we'll look at some of C.S. Lewis's uh, reasons that moved him from being an atheist in his 20s to being a theist and then a, a Christian eventually. And we'll see um, what Lewis's arguments are in syllogistic form and how the new atheists attack those arguments, what they say is wrong with them, and why they're spectacularly wrong about that. <laughs> Which will be fun. Um, so we're just a few minutes early, but if there are any further questions, and if not, we can break. So I'll hand yeah. back to Bjorn. Uh, in the beginning, you said something about when you were in those schools and had those debates. Mm. Um, there were 
Uh, yes. Uh, I think the, um, those two the two, yes. Let me just go back to my arrow diagram. That's fine. Okay. The way I presented to the students is that they're given the question, is there a God? There are four possible answers that you might give. Um, and we can, we can put it like this by saying, well, first of all, if we're, we're, we're asking a question like that, we, we might ask, do we think it's even possible for us to know the answer to a certain question? And some people might say, well, that's an interesting question, but we don't actually think it's even possible for us to know what the the truth is about that. We, we just couldn't... How could we know? And they might try and give you some reason for thinking that it would be impossible for us to know what the answer is. So, of course, there is an answer. Either God exists or he doesn't. Okay? But we could never know. That's a possible position. And some, some people, they're called hard agnostics, take that position. It's a very difficult position to argue for. I think I've got a knockdown argument against it, but um, that's one thing you could argue. There's a slightly softer form of agnosticism. That's not, not knowing, from the Greek agnosis, without knowledge, um, which is the more usual thing that people mean when they say, I'm an agnostic about whether or not there's a God. And that's, that's, people are usually saying, I don't know whether or not there's a God. But that implies that they think... You could know. They're saying, I don't know now, but maybe in the future I will know the answer. You know, um, maybe I'll have an experience of God next week that convinces me that there really is a God. I'm open to that. But until something like that happens at the moment, I would just say, I I don't know whether there's a God or not. I don't know. Then, of course, there are those who say, not only do we think it's possible to know, and not only... we would also say we think we do know what the answer is. And that's, yes, there is a God. <laughs> or those who say, well, of course it's possible to know the answer. And the answer is, no, there isn't a God. No, those are the atheists. So the atheists who say, there is an answer, we can know it, and it's no. You have the theists who say there is an answer, we can know it, and it's yes. You have the agnostics, soft agnostics, who say, well, there is an answer, we can know it, but we don't know it, or at least I don't know it. And then there's the really hard-line agnostics who say, well, okay, I suppose there's an answer, but we can't know it. We can't know what the answer what is. Okay. Hard agnostics. Sometimes they're called dogmatic agnostics, um, rather than agnostics. soft, sort of hard-line. Um, it's a common term? Yeah. yeah. Is that a common term for the yes. types of agnostics? Also, for atheists, maybe hard and soft? Or... Well, of course, all, all beliefs can come, come in different degrees of certainty. If I say, I think the answer is yes, that there is a God, but, uh, you know, two people could say, the answer is yes, there is a God, but one of those people could say, and I'm 98% certain that there is a God. And the other person could say, well, I'm 51% sure that there's a God. 50-50 would be agnostic, so I don't know. 
But if you're 51% towards the God side, then you're saying, well, I, I suppose I'd say there is a God. I think there is a God. But I, I'm really not very confident about that. I wouldn't be terribly surprised if I were wrong about that. Maybe if I'm 65% sure that there's a God, I'd be, quite, I'd be quite surprised if someone could show that there isn't. You know, and fairly confident in basing my life on, on God. So if I'm 70, you know. So all beliefs can come in different degrees of certainty. I mean, even Richard Dawkins says, you know, I don't think I can prove that there's no God. I suppose technically, you know, he, sometimes he says he's an agnostic verging towards atheists. Sometimes he says I'm an atheist. But he says I'm not certain about my atheism. But, you know, he's a very famous atheist. He's very sure and very pro arguing for atheism and so on so, yeah. so, so here he's just setting up all the possible yeah. positions you can have is there God and no or not yeah. so, yes, no and between yeah. and he, right now we haven't argued for each other but no. each must argue it's not only the believers who have to argue yeah. but each position must argue for their case and they're all judged by this same set of rules that we've all learnt that we will hold each other to, that apply to all of us. Nobody gets to escape from the rules, as well. So it's an even-handed playing field. And, for example, I, I said about the hard agnostics. I've got a good, good argument. If any group of students, quite a lot do, try and argue for this. I ask them this question and say, okay, so you're saying you're hard agnostics. So you're saying there might actually be a God... We don't know whether or not there's a God. So there might be a God. But it's impossible for us to know that there's a God or that there isn't. Okay. But you're admitting that there could be a God. And if there is a God, he's omnipotent. That's what being God means. He can do anything that's possible. Omnipotent, yeah? So they're saying, well, there could be a God. And of course, if there is a God, he, he can do anything that's possible. So I simply ask the hard agnostic, do you think it's even possible... For God to do something that rationally convinces someone that he exists. You really, yeah, is it poss possible? Maybe when you die and you end up in heaven and you meet Jesus and you're at the pearly gates and, you know, um, could, could a God who can do anything that's possible do something to show that he exists? Of course, the hard agnostic, to stay a hard agnostic, has to say no. But that seems really implausible thing to say, doesn't it? It seems, you know, you say to most people, well, suppose, supposing you die tomorrow and you find yourself at the gates of heaven and Jesus comes out and has a long conversation with you and says, look, you know, Let's have this, this chat uh, about whether you're going to come in here or not. Uh, you know, even then, you, you know, you couldn't know. <laughs> like, well, so most people will admit, okay, if there is a God, it's possible for him to do something whereby we, we could know that he exists. Um, so most people will be fairly easily convinced that hard agnosticism is, can't be right. They, they might then retreat and say, well, maybe we can't know in this life. We can't know now. Which is a bit of a retreat, at least. And they say, but 
you know, God couldn't, you think it's impossible for God to do a miracle now that would convince you that he exists or, you know, impossible, really, for an omnipotent, you know, it's quite a hard, that's why it's called hard, agnosticism, position to take. And given that kind of, just that sort of conversation on, on subject, a lot of um, pupils will move and say, well, okay, we'll argue for soft agnosticism then. We'll say, oh, of course you could know the answer, but we just don't know. But we have to be open to the possibility that we do know. We can't go through life just ignoring the very possibility of knowing God. And that's quite a big mental shift for someone who's, who's been going through life thinking, I can just completely ignore God, because even if there is one, I couldn't know about him. So who cares? I'd just, you know, go my own merry way. If you then suddenly have to think, well, I suppose I could come to know God if, if there is a God. And, and I'm not an atheist. I'm not saying there isn't a God. So I have to think, well, I, I could come to know God. That's a massive worldview shift. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Is there a God you would have to maybe define what you mean by God? So yes. If, if you have a Buddhist and a Buddhist, yeah. who would not be an atheist, they would they would say that there there's this, but they wouldn't they wouldn't say there's a God. Yeah. This is key. I do do more in the conference about the importance of of defining terms, as we did with that argument about bachelors, and we define terms. And there's a, there's a little section about defining terms and I'd give marks in the presentations for, for how do they define their key terms so I encourage them to give a definition of what they mean by God so they would come up and say by God we mean this and then we argue one of those four positions relative to that definition and they'd get extra marks if they did that mm. um, so yeah we do go into that indeed there are you know there are atheist forms of buddhism and there are non-atheist forms of buddhism and there are different types of theism and we, we talk a little bit about you know maybe pantheism and polytheism and monotheism and the difference between christian monotheism and jewish and islamic monotheism and and so on so yeah I, I encourage them to think about that very issue and you could you could go through a different set of arguments about relative to any particular definition of divinity. So relative to a pantheistic definition of divinity, I'm an atheist. <laughs> well, I'm an, I'm an apantheist. I believe there is no pantheistic God that exists because I'm a Christian monotheist. <laughs> yeah. So in, in the early days of, of Christianity, uh, Christians were accused of being atheists. The, the problem with those Christians is they're atheists because they don't believe in the gods mm -hmm. of the state, you see. They reject the gods, so they're atheists. <laughs> it just, the term had that sort of broad, over time the term has evolved in, in the West to mean a, a more, um, an atheist is someone who rejects the Christian concept of Christian God. Atheism. Yeah, that's right. So even Richard Dawkins says, you know, he's an Anglican atheist. Um, because he was brought up as an Anglican and that's the God that he rejected now he would say, I don't think there's any gods there's nothing supernatural because he's embraced a naturalistic worldview um, 
but you can, of course, very well be a, be a supernaturalist, someone who believes in something supernatural, but who's an atheist, um, like some forms of Buddhists are. So these things, yeah, you have to be careful by what you mean by. You'll often find philosophers answering questions by saying, well, depends what you mean by. When we want to get our terms clear and unambiguous so we know what we're arguing about. If we don't know what we're arguing about, we might as well not really bother. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you, Peter. This, thank you. This was really a challenge. We have been stretching our minds, and we'll be stretching more this afternoon. Although I think maybe the afternoon will be a little more familiar. Um, so, but this is very important in, in, uh, in helping us to be proper in our use of logic. And I think now, now there's tea. Uh, there's going to be uh, um, 11:30 personal study practical work session. And I could advise you to well look at the closure part. You can read on both of.